Hey everyone, before we get into part two of the history of Hunan, let me remind you that my new Tea History podcast is now up and running on most, but not all, podcast apps. Just search for the Tea History podcast or find it at my website at teacup.media. And now, here's part two of the history of Hunan. Welcome back, everyone, to another China History podcast episode, the 274th. Part two this time of the history of the province where it all began for China, or so their tourism authority said once. As I mentioned last time, there are several contenders for that title. Shanxi, Shanxi, Gansu, and Shandong, four provinces where the Yellow River flowed. But thanks to the Xia and Shang dynasties, and the centrality of Hunan province to both, if Hunan can't wear the crown of the original homeland of the Han Chinese people, well, let's all at least agree they're tied for the top spot. Last time we got as far as the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, 770 to 256 BCE. Today we're going to wallow in that period that served as a centuries-old incubator of so much Chinese culture that bloomed during the Han Dynasty. 770 BCE. That was the year the Zhou kings got chased out of their capital, Haojing, near present-day Xi'an. And to escape their marauding enemies in the west, they sprinted for their lives in an eastern direction and got themselves set up in Luoyang, Henan province. And for the next 1,200 years, Luoyang, on and off, served as the focal point for the political Chinese state. Flood Tamer and Xia Dynasty founder Yu the Great, according to the Book of Documents, the Shangshu, one of the five classics, divided China up into these Jiuzhou, or nine provinces of ancient China. They don't actually become names of regions till the Eastern Han, but during the Eastern Zhou, they already existed in writings. And one of those provinces or states was called Yuzhou, where Henan was located on the map. And you may recall how this character, Yu, for the next few thousand years, and even to this day, represents anything Henan. So Chinese civilization, as we saw last episode in part one, with these Neolithic cultures, and then with the Xia and Shang, caught fire initially in and around Henan. And by the Zhou Dynasty, there was already plenty going on elsewhere besides Henan in the rising and evolving Chinese nation-state. The royal Ji family, namely Kings Wen and Wu, founded the Zhou dynasty back in 1046 BCE, and once Ji Fa, King Wu, finished off the Shang, he enfiefed a whole band of brothers who were given these lands surrounding the Zhou dynasty capital, initially located, as I just stated, in Haoqing, uh, near Xi'an in Shanxi, and then after 770 BCE in Luoyang. And we'll see, it didn't take long for these dukedoms surrounding the Zhou center to begin having aspirations to unite all lands in China as they knew it under one ruler, themselves if at all possible. And this long period of contention between these states, all dreaming of hegemony, was essentially contained in the Eastern Zhou from 770 to 476 BCE during the spring and autumn period, and then from 476 to 221 BCE with the Warring States period. The last Zhou King Nan was put away in 256 BCE, and once he was done in, 
That's it for the Eastern Zhou Dynasty. And then for the next 35 years, ending in 221 BCE, one by one, the soon-to-be first emperor of China vanquished the remaining states of Han, Zhao, Wei, Chu, Yan, and finally Qi. And once he was the last warrior king standing, he went on to found the Qin Dynasty. And 2,242 years later, his tomb is one of the most popular tourist attractions in all of China. So let's take a look at Hunan during this fabled and swashbuckling time in China's feudal history. If you look on a map of China during the Eastern Zhou period, you'll see about a half dozen smallish states crammed into what looks like the present-day borders of Hunan province. These were the states of Wei, Zheng, Cai, Chen, Song, and a little bit of Cao, which was mostly in neighboring Shandong. And you could see, surrounding all these smaller states that make up today's Hunan, were the big brutes of the Warring States period. Jin, Qin, Qi, Chu, and Wu. The most consequential of all these states we'll look at, contained within the present-day borders of Hunan, was probably Zheng, from which we get Zhengzhou, the capital of Hunan in our day. When King Wu was enfiefing lands like crazy to all his most loyal family members, the future city of Zhengzhou was divvied up into small dukedoms, Guan and Kuai, the best known, and there were others. The Zheng clan who built this state came a little later. They had always been very tight with the Zhou royal family back in Haoqing and joined them in 770 BCE when they bolted for safety eastward to Luoyang. And for his loyalty and fealty, this Zheng ruler, Zheng Wukong, was given lands in present-day Zhengzhou, and there he established a capital called Xinjiang, or New Zheng. Xinjiang, among other historical claims to fame, is the traditional birthplace of the Yellow Emperor. The folks there call their town the Huangdi Guli, the hometown of the Yellow Emperor. Zheng was a very important and powerful state at the beginning of the Eastern Zhou, and present-day Zhengzhou Prefecture, that's the city of Zhengzhou and the surrounding counties, this was the seat of power in Zheng. But come the early 7th century BCE, as it happened during this feudal age of China, internecine succession struggles caused Zheng to stumble relative to their surrounding neighbors. Let me mention two Zheng luminaries who had an impact on the big picture of Chinese history. The first was named Zichan. He was the grandson of one of the Dukes of Zheng, and he served as Prime Minister of Zheng to a couple of the uh, Dukes. Now, we remember Zichan for his law code of 543 BCE, and this was the first law code in China's history and strongly emphasized rule of law. This first law code of Zheng later on went to serve as a template for many future fajir, or legal codes, that followed throughout the dynasties. Confucius was a very big fan of Zichan and spoke quite highly of him. They lived in similar times, Zichan dying in 522 and Confucius 43 years later in 479 BCE. Zheng's problem, well, it was both a blessing and a curse, was that Strategically, they were located at the crossroads between the more powerful and ambitious states. 
when the Warring States period was in full swing, they ended up, as I said, getting annexed by Han. And like the city of Zhengzhou today, Zheng State had initially been able to capitalize on their central geographic position and prospered for a long while as a commercial hub. But they had powerful neighbors and were in harm's way when these states occasionally went after each other. Let me mention uh, the other noteworthy citizen of Zheng. This was Shan Buhai. Now, he lived 400 to 337 BCE. Shan Buhai was born in Zheng, but made his mark in Chinese history in the state of Han after his home in Zheng was annexed in 375 BCE. Shan Buhai became an official in Han and ended up having a profound impact on the Han government administration. And his writings were compiled in an eponymous book called the Shanzi. Shan Buhai did not single-handedly invent the concept of a meritocracy, but the notion of employing and promoting capable people who knew how to achieve and get results. Well, it was during this Eastern Zhou period where the idea was first argued, and Shun's name is always cited when discussing the earliest writings that suggested this. I mentioned some of Shun Buhai's accomplishments in that History of Chinese Philosophy series. He was one of the chief architects of China's government administration system, the blueprint of which most dynasties stuck to throughout the entirety of Chinese imperial history. Shan Buhai's writings were read and admired by Han Fei, another giant in Chinese history, also from the warring state of Han. He was a prince of that state from among the aristocracy, and coming from Han meant he too was born in Hunan. By the way, don't miss the recent Seneca podcast episode, Jeremy Goldcorn with guests Jia Jian Ying and the legendary Jeremy R. Barmay. If you'd like to drill down deeper into Han Feizi and the relevancy of his legalist thought back in his time and in today's PRC, you won't want to miss that. The link is at the show notes. Han State was located south and east of Luoyang in the more mountainous and less prosperous portion of Hunan. They got taken off the chessboard in 230 BCE after falling to Qin. Wei was another one of the states contained inside modern-day Hunan. People who have studied Chinese history from this time recognize this Wei state as the one that's spelled W-E-Y in order to differentiate it from the other big Wei of the day, which was a different character but shared the same fourth tone in its pronunciation. Two ways, same pronunciation, different Chinese character, and different romanization. The other way, W-E-I, was located in northeast Hunan, spilling over the border into southern Hebei. And like all the states close to the Zhou center, it was another royal brother who remained loyal to the Duke of Zhou during the early challenges to his regency for young King Cheng, and for sticking with the Duke of Zhou, this brother was rewarded with these lands in Wei. And they themselves were not a major player during the Eastern Zhou and were mainly just fought over. The capital of Wei was at Zhaoge, 50 miles south of Anyang, the last of the Shang Dynasty capitals. What's interesting about Wei is that they survived the Warring States period and hung in there as a political entity till 209 BCE and didn't get put out of business till late in the Qin Dynasty. And if I mention Shan Buhai as a famous son of Han by way of Zheng, 
another giant of legalism, Shangyang. Well, he was born in Wei, which means, just as with Shanbuhai, he was born in one state but made his mark working in another one, namely Qin. So both Shangyang and Shanbuhai, two major names in legalist thought, lived at the same time and only died within a year of each other. Another eastern Zhou state located inside the borders of present-day Henan was Chen. Chen state flourished from 1045 to 479 BCE, in the end absorbed by Chu to the south. Chen's capital was at Wanqiu, eastern Henan, Huayang district. It was also known as Chenzhou. Administratively, this area is part of today's prefecture of Zhoukou. Yuan Shikai was from around there. These people of Chen, their clan, they claimed Emperor Shun himself as their most ancient ancestor. The most revered forefather of Chen was Chen Hugong, a son-in-law to Zhou King Wu. Now, he was enfiefed in these lands, and this loyal Duke Hu of Chen is called the founding ancestor of all hundred or so million people around the world who have this Chen surname including all Chans in Guangdong, Chans in Vietnam, and Dans in Singapore, Malaysia, and the world over. Lao Tzu supposedly came from Chan State, and for that reason, it's also sometimes called the birthplace of Taoism. No one's discovered Lao Tzu's birth certificate, so that claim of coming from Chan, well, we just have to take Sima Qian's word for it. Later on, following the death of Qin Shi Huang, the leaders of the Dazi Xiang uprising, Chensheng and Wuguan, they set up their capital in Chen. The state of Cai was located just west of Chen in today's Dian. And all Chinese people in the world who share this character Cai as their surname are said to originate from here. The capital was at Shangcai, and Cai lasted till 447 BCE, defeated by Chu, early in the Warring States period, when many of these places, big and small, had been whittled down to seven. You know, when you read or hear about China being the oldest continuous civilization on Earth, well, you could see it in all these places I'm mentioning from so long ago, like Shangcai. Look for this place on Google Maps, it's still around, 2,000 and more years later, midway between Zhoukou and Zhumatian. Let's look at some of the major cities of Henan, where all the history of the province took place. I've already mentioned some of these places. Let's drill down another few centimeters and recall some of the people and events that happened there. Henan's Yellow River cities were west to east, Sanmenxia, Luoyang, Zhengzhou, Kaifeng, and Shangqiu. Nanyang was located in the south, and all the way at the bottom of Henan was the city of Xinyang, a city we'll look at in more detail when we get to PRC times. And in the middle of Henan are Xuchang, Zhoukou, Zhumadian, and Pingdingshan. In the remaining time we have, let's look at a couple of the most important cities of historical significance in Henan, and not only there, in all of Chinese history, too. Let's first focus on Luoyang, a city known by many names throughout the millennia. We already looked at the famous Luoyang water banquet last episode. I also discussed Luoyang's importance during the Xia and Shang dynasties. Because of this city's historical and cultural significance going back to the beginning, 
Luoyang was chosen as the capital of 13 dynasties and is called one of the Sida Gudu, the four ancient capitals of China. 105 emperors ruled from this location. Luoyang was the political, cultural, economic, and intellectual center of China for more or less 1,500 years. The Luo and Yi rivers meet just to the east of Luoyang before flowing into the Yellow River, just west of Zhengzhou. 1600 BCE, or thereabouts, Luoyang was where the Shang founder, King Tang, built his capital. When the Zhou put away the Shang, it was at Luoyang that the Duke of Zhou built one of his capitals, calling it Chengzhou. 493 CE, the northern Wei Emperor Xiao Wen began work on the Longmen Grottoes, and he moved his capital from Shanxi to Luoyang, and the Longmen Grottoes, this UNESCO World Heritage Site, was carved into the rock cliffs over a period of the next six centuries, and today is among Luoyang's most popular tourist attractions, along with Mount Song and Shaolin Temple. Another must-see ancient site in Luoyang is the White Horse Temple, the Bai Ma Si, built in 68 CE during the Eastern Han, the first Buddhist temple ever built in China. Three of the four great inventions were said to have been invented in Luoyang, gunpowder, printing, and paper. And besides the Northern Wei, that ran 386 to 535, Cao Wei had its capital here during the Three Kingdoms period from 220 to 266, and the first capital of the Western Jin was built at Luoyang from 266 to 311. And with such a great and historic tradition already associated with this city, during the Sui Dynasty, Emperor Yang Di, at a horrific expense, built his capital here, modeled on the one his father, Emperor Wen, uh, built in Chang'an. Luoyang was also one of the Tang Dynasty capitals, the eastern one, or Dongdu, and when Wu Zetian ruled her own dynasty that made her the only woman in Chinese history to rule China as an empress, she also chose Luoyang as her capital. The city was also the capital of An Lushan's short-lived dynasty that saw plenty of devastation during that seven-year rebellion that bears his name. Oh yeah, and let me remind you, if your head is already spinning with all these Chinese names, just go to the website at teacup.media, go to this CHP 274 episode, and you could download a gorgeous PDF of all the terms used. I mean, it's all there. Pinyin, Chinese, English. Last episode was, I think, the longest list of terms I ever had. After the Tang Dynasty fell in 907, Luoyang served as the capital of the later Liang for six years until it was moved to Kaifeng. The short-lived later Tang also had its capital at Luoyang. And during the Northern Song, as we all know, Zhao Kuangyin set up his capital at Kaifeng, which we'll talk about in just a second, but he kept a Western capital at Luoyang as well, that city being his place of birth. And when the Jurchen Jin dynasty destroyed the Song and forced remnants of the royal house to flee to the south, to Hangzhou, it was at Luoyang where these Jurchens established their middle capital. And after the Jurchen onslaught, never again did Luoyang serve as the capital of any dynasties, nor did it enjoy the prestige and 
historical gravitas that it had enjoyed from the time of Yu the Great all the way up to the fall of the Northern Song. During the Yuan, Ming, and Qing, Luoyang was destroyed and rebuilt a number of times. The other major city of Henan, historically speaking, that is, was of course Kaifeng, also one of the four ancient capitals of China. First as the capital of one of the warring states, namely Wei, the one spelled W-E-I. The city was then referred to as Daliang, before the king of Qin, Ying Zheng, crowned himself as the first emperor of China, he wrecked the city of Daliang. And let me say that this wasn't the last time Kaifeng was destroyed. It doesn't really show up on the radar again until the Sui, when the city was made a stop on Emperor Yang's greatest achievement, the Grand Canal. The later Liang of the Five Dynasties Ten Kingdoms period moved their capital from Luoyang to Kaifeng, other dynasties who built their capital there included the later Jin, later Han, and later Zhou, all from the Five Dynasties period that was nestled in between the Tang and Song dynasties. Kaifeng got a nice makeover during the Tang and was called Bian. Aside from serving as a capital to past dynasties, I guess you could say Kaifeng's greatest moment on the stage of Chinese and even world history was during the Northern Song. This was, without a doubt, Kaifeng's golden age in all respects. It was arguably the greatest city in the world, much as Chang'an could claim to be during the Western Han and Tang dynasties. During the 12th century, Kaifeng was the biggest city in the world. No place had more people. And during the Northern Song, 960 to 1127, Kaifeng was the commercial, cultural, and political capital for the country. Kaifeng was then called Bianjing, and as we know from more than a couple past CHP episodes, this city was smashed to smithereens when the Jurchens invaded and snuffed out the northern Song. Don't make me mention the Jingkang incident. I won't sleep tonight if I do. The invading Jin forces, after a terrible siege, destroyed most of the city. They later fixed it up and repurposed Kaifeng as their southern capital. And later on, when the Mongols do to them what they did to the Song, the Jurchen Jin government will flee from their lands in the north and have a Custer's last stand in Kaifeng, which became their main capital. Then in 1232-1233, combined Mongol forces under Ogade and Tului teamed up with Song forces to lay siege to Kaifeng and force the Jin to give up. Now they know how Huizong felt. And it was during the Yuan Dynasty in 1268 that Henan, more or less in the shape and size as we know it today, became a province. The name of the province was first known as Henan Jiangbei, Xingsheng. They called the provinces Xingsheng back then, as opposed to now just plain old Sheng. The Mongols created 11 of these provinces to administer their most prized possession. And Kaifeng was made the government seat of Henan and remained the capital until 1954 when Zhengzhou emerged as the most important and strategic city in Henan province, replacing Kaifeng as the provincial government's seat. The next big thing to happen to Kaifeng was towards the end of the Yuan dynasty when the Red Turban rebels, seeking the overthrow of the dynasty set their headquarters up there. 
In the end, Zhu Yuanzhang was the last man standing after the Mongols were pushed to the side, and he moved the capital down to his stronghold of Nanjing, Jiangsu province, or Jiangzhe province, as it had been called under the Mongol administrative system. So, Kaifeng initially served as the capital of Hunan province, and in the final years of the Ming, mid-1600s, after being politically torn asunder by decades of eunuchs abusing their powerful positions, Kaifeng faced not only the threat of the Manchus to the north, but the hot-headed and potent forces of the rebel leader Li Zicheng. He made Kaifeng his capital as well. But after Li Zicheng got imperial aspirations and established his own dynasty, the very short-lived Xun dynasty, he moved it to Xi'an in 1644. So, you know, that didn't last long. But before he did that, when Li Zicheng was coming in for the kill back in 1642 and laid siege to the city of Kaifeng, Ming Dynasty officials there came up with a plan to halt him in his tracks by destroying the dikes built earlier in the dynasty's history to control the chronic flooding of the Yellow River. And in doing so, on paper anyway, the whole fury of the Yellow River pouring through those breaks in the dikes, well, this would wipe out the rebels and end the siege. Instead, what ended up happening in Kaifeng was the 1642 Yellow River Flood. The Yellow River, sometimes referred to as China's Sorrow, all throughout the millennia had flooded countless times and wiped out who knows how many millions of people. I read between 1194 during the Southern Song in 1938, Kaifeng alone flooded 368 times to varying degrees. But this flood from 1642... A man-made disaster at that? Well, this was one of the worst by far. The floods that followed the destruction of the Yellow River dikes indeed did the trick, and Li Zicheng's soldiers were wiped out. But a lot more than this rebel army was affected. In fact, about 75% of the urban population of Kaifeng ended up perishing from the flood and from the blowback that, without fail, always follows extreme flood events of this magnitude, mostly disease and famine. No one had an accurate count of the numbers who perished, but most say about 300,000 souls died. And though they rarely ever got mentioned in the history books, a lot of domesticated and wild animals also got wiped out. Kaifeng was made uninhabitable for 20 years, By the way, if you're unfamiliar with what a dike is, that's D-I or D-Y-K-E. It's an embankment that is constructed using dirt or sandbags. And their primary purpose is to control or hold back the waters of the sea or a river that rises due to storms or some other natural reason. Here in the beautiful country, we call them levees. These are the structures that failed in late August 2005, when Hurricane Katrina did so much damage to the great city of New Orleans. In addition to all the other devastation from the 1642 Yellow River flood, the Kaifeng Jewish settlement that had thrived in Kaifeng for centuries got wiped out. The synagogue, Torat, everything. And this Jewish community in Kaifeng, Hunan province, never recovered, except as a kind of, I guess, tourist attraction today. 
Qing Emperor Kangxi had the city rebuilt, but it got flooded out again in 1843. And this reconstruction carried out during the Daoguang Emperor's time is pretty much what you see today as far as Kaifeng's location on the map of China. So we can see Yellow River flooding and the death and devastation that followed every time it rained too hard, after too many decades of silt got built up on the riverbed. This natural phenomenon is every bit as part and parcel of Hunan history as all the other history that happened in and around the ancient capitals and key cities of the province. In Hunan history, the Yellow River sort of gets top billing. Let's finish off the episode with a quick look at Anyang. Both Yangshao and Longshan cultures thrived in and around there. 2000 BCE or thereabouts, the Yellow River's grandson Zhuanxu and his cousin and fellow mythical emperor Ku both set up their capitals at Anyang, and you could visit their mausoleums next time you find yourself there. This city, by the way, is not one of those built on the banks of the Yellow River. Anyang is much further north, but like any city of even minor importance, it was built along a river, the Anyang River in Anyang's case. No other city in Hunan evokes the Shang Dynasty more than this city in northern Hunan on the border with Hebei. Anyang was the ancient city of Yin where the Shang oracle bones were discovered that moved the dynasty from the mythical category to the historical category. Twelve Shang kings ruled from Anyang until 1046 BCE when this dynasty came crashing down at the hands of the Zhou dynasty kings Wen and Wu. Anyang, like a lot of these ancient cities, went through a number of name changes over the centuries. It was called Zhangde for most of its history and didn't officially become Anyang until 1912. One interesting little factoid for you. When the communists took over China in 1949, several prefectures in Henan, Anyang, Puyang, and Xinxiang, were broken off from Henan, and along with three prefectures in Shandong, were made into a new province in China called Pingyuan. And this didn't last long, and everything went back to the way it was in November 1952, returning to the borders that were delineated in the Yuan Dynasty. And the way Chairman Mao probably saw it, eh, if those borders were good enough for Kublai Khan, it was good enough for him too. Okay, let's gather up our things and call it a day for now. I think I've gone on long enough. We'll finish this off next episode in part three, I have faith. So until that time, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, down the street from Heart Attack and Vine, petitioning you to find time in your busy schedules to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.